Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lyra, and I just want to thank you so much for joining me. I am a 90s baby, but I do love looking back at the 80s. I think I could have really thrived in the 80s, and for whatever reason, that made me want to do a case from the 80s. So we are going to go to Webster County, Missouri, 1987, in a small town called Elkland. But before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer Podcast. I love doing this. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And go check out my Facebook, Storytime Slayer, and my Instagram, story underscore time underscore slayer. I am also finally on YouTube. And I have a really exciting giveaway on my Facebook and Instagram that goes with my new merch store. Yay! Yes, there is some spring summer merch tie-dye available for Storytime Slayer. I will drop the link to that below. This is 100% custom, handmade, pre-shrunk, pre-washed tie-dye. Okay, guys, let's jump in. Elkland is a really small farming community in Missouri. And in the 80s, everybody knew everybody. Um, it's a Christian-based community for farming. And according to the Chicago Tribune, Elkland had a population of 200 when this crime took place. Now, aside from farms, there really isn't much there. There's a couple stores, I think one or two diners, and two churches. Even now, in 2022, Elkland only has a population of 2,000. So amongst this population was the Buckner family. The Buckners were a farming family. Steve Buckner, who was 35 when all of this happened, had been raised on a dairy farm himself in Elkland, Missouri, and he bought his own farm there in 1969. His wife, Jeanette, who went by Jan and was 36, was also born and raised in Elkland on a farm. So the couple were both born, raised, and never left their hometown and had four sons together. They had 14-year-old Kurt, 8-year-old Dennis, 6-year-old Timmy, and 2-year-old Michael. All boys. Four boys. Woof. So down the road from Steve was five miles is his sister Julie and her husband Jim Schmidt. Schmidt. They too have a farm. I don't know if it's a dairy farm. I don't know. Julie was about 30 and Jim was about 36 and together they had two daughters who were ages 8 and 6 when everything went down in 1987. The Buckner and Smiths were your all-American farmers. They're described as salt of the earth people, which is a phrase used to describe people as being really good and honest. All the Buckner boys worked on the farm with their parents, but the oldest son, Kurt, he was 14. He did the most. He is said to have been a really great kid, respectful, loving, hardworking. He would rise before the sun with his mom and dad and help them with their morning farm work before he got on the bus and went to school every day and then he'd come home and do more chores. But something happened in the 80s. The farming economy came to a damn near halt. Interest rates rose, loans became really hard to get, and farmland values went down as much as 50%. In 1985, nearly 200 farmers a day were losing their farm. It was a total economic collapse for the farming community. 
In fact, the farming economic crash in the 80s is where the benefit concert Farm Aid came from. So Farm Aid is an annual concert that raises funds for farmers in America. It started first September of 1985 and it continues still. In fact, the lineup this year has Willie Nelson and Dave Matthews amongst many other names. And it's really fun and the concessions for the concert are all local produce. And according to the Farm Aid website, they've raised over $64 million today. Anyway, the Buckner family are amongst the farmers falling on hard economic times during this big farming famine. It's 1987 and dairy farms everywhere are shutting down, which is, I believe, the type of farm Steve Buckner had. Steve Buckner has become two years behind on his mortgage and the pressure is mounting. You guys, it's so much work to run a farm and it's not cheap by any means. And in the 80s, no farmers are making any money. So apparently, though, Jim Schmidt, Steve Buckner's brother-in-law, he wasn't doing too bad. In a later interview, Jim said that his farm was okay and he was actually one of the farmers that was not in jeopardy of losing their farm like Steve was. So him and other people who knew the Buckner family was struggling would loan out their farm equipment to Steve. But Jim said that Steve began taking things from him without asking, and this caused a great deal of tension between them until eventually the two families were completely divided and quit talking. Not long after the split did tragedy strike hard. So it was September 25th, 1987, and we'll say it's about 630 in the morning. 911 gets a phone call from Jim Schmidt. And Jim reports to the operator that he was shot and needs immediate assistance. When police get there, Jim is alive, but he's extremely incoherent. He cannot seem to make sense to police of what was going on around him, nor answer any questions. So Jim had been shot in the leg and stabbed in the stomach. It was all superficial wounds. No major arteries were hit or anything like that. Near Jim, though, laying in the hallway was Jim's 14-year-old nephew, Kurt Buckner. Stephen Jan's son. Kurt had been shot and stabbed and was dead in the hallway near Jim when police arrived and in Kurt's right hand was a gun. The police canvassed Jim's house and they actually find his wife, Julie, had been murdered in her bed. She'd been shot in the head while she was asleep. Fortunately, when they got to the bedroom that both Smith's girls shared, both the little girls were asleep and unharmed. So the daughters are removed from the home alive. Jim is air flighted to a nearby hospital and police are left to piece all of this together themselves because like I said, Jim's incoherent and in need of medical attention. Kurt's dead. Julie's dead. So police decide, okay, we need to go to the Buckner home and let them know what happened to their 14 year old son and piece this together. But when they got to the Buckner home, which was five miles from Jim and Julie's, they knocked on the door, rang the bell, whatever, and it was extremely quiet and nobody answered. So police just immediately got the feeling that something was wrong and they just walked right on into the house. The Buckners, remember, are going through really hard times. They're two years behind on their mortgage. They barely have enough money to keep food on the table. And they live in a really small farmhouse that's kind of dilapidating. Apparently, all the younger Buckner children slept in the front room of the home, and Kurt slept in the family's camper outside. So the camper that Kurt slept in was pretty small, and it's one that 
attaches on top of the bed of a pickup truck. I'm actually going to have a photo posted of this if you want to go check it out on Facebook or Instagram just to get an idea. So Kurt slept in that pickup camper and his three younger siblings were in the front room of the Buckner home. There was a set of bunk beds for Dennis and Timmy and a crib for little Michael. But as soon as the police walked into the room, they found a blood bath. All three of Kurt's younger brothers had been shot in the head while they were asleep, even the two-year-old. Police searched the rest of the home, but Steve and Jan are nowhere inside. And investigators decide to look around the farm and see if they can find them. They're completely unsure if Jan and Steve are victims or if they are are part of this murder. Now, it doesn't take long to find Jan. She was just right outside the milk barn, and she was deceased on the ground. She, too, had been shot square in the back of the head. But police still couldn't find Steve. Was Steve the killer, or was he a victim? They have no idea, so they start a large manhunt for him. And it doesn't seem like it took too long to find Steve. His body was nearby. He'd been dumped on like a gravel dirt road near some bushes and weeds by Pleasantville Cemetery. So police rush to the body's location, and it is in fact Steve, and he'd been shot also two times in the back of the head. So now police realize an entire family has been slaughtered. Two sister-in-laws one husband, four boys, and then there's Jim, Steve's brother-in-law, the only one who survived the attack on them. Webster County Sheriff Eugene Franker and his team had to piece together what they could, and it looked as though 14-year-old Kurt Buckner was the perpetrator. It seemed like he killed his entire family and then went to murder his extended family five miles down the road, but was stopped by his uncle Jim. You see, Kurt was found dead in Jim's hallway with the gun used to murder everybody in his right hand, and he was the only person who did not die by a gunshot wound to the back of the head, but he actually died from a gunshot wound to the chest. This was both shocking and heartbreaking. A lot of people in the community knew Kurt because two years before this happened, he nearly drowned to death and was rescued by a boy named Billy Shoemaker. And Shoemaker actually won an award from the town for heroism. Plus, like I said, this is a really, really small town. There's only a couple stores, two churches, and one of those two churches the Buckner family attended. So people were shocked. They were shocked. The school that Kurt attended was really surprised and said that they'd never had a single issue occur with Kurt. And he was a really, really good kid. A store clerk who saw Curtis just days before this murder said that he seemed his usual normal self. Most people said Kurt was quiet, but you could always get a smile out of him. He had a lot of responsibility helping his parents with the farm and that they were very poor, but Kurt still didn't seem like the type to do this. A lot of people, though, were able to accept it because of the Buckner's economic disparity growing and the amount of workload that Kurt had on the farm. Um, Some people believed it just caused him to snap. It was very heartbreaking, but everyone just kind of accepted like, okay, I think Kurt was the one who did this. He killed his family and then went to go kill his uncle's family. Now, when police were able to speak to Jim when he was recovering in the hospital, Jim said that the morning of September 25th, 1987, he'd gotten up earlier to check on a cow that was really close to going into labor. As he made his way back to the house from the barn area, he saw some flashes of light inside of his house. 
Now, when he got to his house and entered, he saw a shadowy figure in the hallway. And that is when Jim was shot in the leg by whoever this mysterious shadow person was. Jim claims that he blacked out after being shot and cannot remember anything else. By the way, Jim did not have a long recovery. The injuries that he sustained were rather superficial. So the theory is that Kurt Buckner started at his house, snuck up, shot his parents while they were all doing their early morning chores before anybody else in the family got up. Then he went into his house and shot all his brothers while they slept in their bed. He likely put his dad in the truck after killing him and dumped his body near the cemetery before driving the five miles to his aunt Julie and uncle Jim's farm where he killed his aunt and attempted to murder his uncle. Nobody was really sure why he only moved his dad's body, but he moved his dad's body. He makes his way to his aunt and uncle's home, and they think that he must have snuck in to Jim and Julie's bedroom first, expecting to find both his aunt and uncle there and killing them. But when he made it to the room, he only found his aunt. Before Kurt made it to his cousin's room to murder them, he was interrupted and possibly startled by his uncle. And so that is when the altercation must have taken place between Jim and Kurt, where they likely struggled for the gun and knife, leaving Jim shot in the leg and stabbed in the abdomen. And that is why Kurt had been shot and stabbed several times, but ultimately found with the gun in his hand. So everything seems wrapped up and they completely cracked the case. A funeral was held on September 28th and it was devastating, you guys. Seven coffins. Just imagine seven coffins. An entire family murdered. Jim was released from the hospital in time for the funeral. However, his leg injury made it so that he could not walk up to the actual gravesite and he had to watch the burial part of the ceremony from his truck. So although tragic, most people just seem to accept what happened, are devastated, and life goes on. Until police get a phone call and the caller reported that Kurt was left-handed. Now why is that relevant? Because when police found Kurt's lifeless body, the gun had been found in Kurt's right hand. So police decide, you know what, let's just give everything a really fresh look. Let's take a second look at all the evidence. So it was pretty suspicious why somebody left-handed would be holding a weapon in the opposite hand. The second thing investigators found suspicious was in their original theory, Kurt loaded his dad into his own pickup truck and dumped his body amongst the weeds But Kurt was really small. He only weighed in at about 130 pounds, whereas his dad weighed 250 to 260 pounds. Police begin to think, man, there's no way that Kurt could have drugged his dad's body as far as he did. Even just from the truck to the bushes, how did he get him in and out of there? I mean, dead weight is extremely heavy and his dad doubled his size. So then they were like, okay, we're going to look even harder. The gun used in the crime was a 22 caliber six shot revolver. Now to reload this gun, you have to remove what's called the retaining pin. And a retaining pin is just a metal rod that holds the bullet chamber and the gun to shoot it. So you have to remove the retaining pin to load the gun and then put the retaining pin back into place. Well, police did not have the retaining pin. 
See, during the murder spree, 17 rounds were fired from the gun, meaning whoever fired the weapon would had to have had the retaining pin to carry out the crime because the weapon only holds six shots at a time. If Kurt was actively using the gun during his struggle with his uncle, why was the pin not in place when police collected this gun as evidence from Kurt's dead right hand? And police really wanted to search the crime scene at Jim's home, like maybe the pin got stuck between the carpet and the baseboard right next to Kurt's body or something. But the issue with going back to the scene of the crime to search for the pin is eager do-good neighbors had already cleaned up the crime scene in an attempt to be good Samaritans to Jim. So police have to just keep the suspicions about the gun's missing pin on the back burner and see what else they can find. That is when something really shocking and unknown was found out about Jim. Jim had been having an affair. See, two years before the murders, Jim met a woman named Nancy. She was a nurse practitioner that Jim went to go see for chest pains he was having. And from what I understand, the affair started within Jim's first appointment. What was supposed to be a 15-minute appointment turned into a four-hour rendezvous. Sparks flew and nobody had any idea. Not any of Jim's friends or family knew that Jim was having an affair. And most people assume that not even Jim's wife knew that he had a girlfriend. But Jim does admit to the affair when police ask him. And he said, yeah, I was having an affair, but I wasn't going to like run away with Nancy or anything. He claims that him and his wife were actually working to repair their marriage. And his fling with Nancy wasn't like that hot and heavy. So police are like, okay, fine. We're going to interview Jim's girlfriend, Nancy. And they do. And when they interview Nancy, she immediately admits to the affair. But she too makes it seem really um, not that intense. And then she just is like, yeah, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I had no idea about the murders or anything like that. So she just goes on her way. But the next day, Nancy calls police back and she says, okay, okay, I lied. I lied. Me and Jim's affair was pretty serious. We were madly in love and Jim had actually told me several times before the shootings that he was going to divorce his wife, get custody of his daughters, and then me and him were actually going to be together. We were going to get married and live a life together. So, you know, there's always his version, her version, and the truth in the middle. So here is what everyone kind of thinks the truth in the middle is Jim started this affair with Nancy and then he started filling her head with promises that he was going to leave his wife and marry her meanwhile Jim is going to his wife Julie and trying to repair their marriage so Jim and Julie even do like marriage counseling Nancy becomes fed up with all this BS and is like, when are you leaving your wife? And of course, after two years, she figures out, oh my God, I think he's stringing me along. So that summer of 1987, just a month or two before the crimes, Nancy decides, F it, I'm going to go pay Julie a visit and I'm going to set the record straight on what's going on with her husband. So Nancy told Julie that Jim had been telling her that he was going to divorce Julie and be with Nancy. Nancy just laid it all out for Julie. She told her the truth that she'd been seeing Jim for two years. And apparently Julie had absolutely no idea that her husband was even having an affair. And that's when she tells Nancy that they've been working to repair their marriage. And Nancy was equally crushed as well. I mean, the man that Nancy loved 
said that he was going to be with her. And then the man that Julie loved said that he was trying to repair their marriage. And in the meantime, he was just filling both of their heads with lies. So now all the cards are on the table and Julie wanted to get a divorce. So as you guys know, police always suspect the spouse first and an affair is always motive for murder. So police decide they're going to look for more evidence to corroborate their second theory that Jim is actually the killer. Police hadn't done an official autopsy on Kurt. Um, Apparently, they just assumed he died of the gunshot and stab wounds because, remember, they put that whole theory together kind of themselves. So they decided, you know, we need to have an official autopsy done. And when they did, they found something shocking out. Kurt had actually died. He He did die from a gunshot wound. But the gunshot wound that killed him went through his back and directly pierced his heart. And it was after Kurt had died that he sustained the other gunshot wounds and the stab wounds. Okay, so all the stab wounds occurred post-mortem. And the two bullet shots that Kurt had post-mortem was one was to the chest and the other was through his neck. Um, So here we go. How could Kurt have the gun that shot and killed him in the back in his right hand, right? And then two, how could he have gotten into a struggle with Jim and sustained those two gunshot wounds to the throat and all those stab wounds post-mortem, right? But the smoking gun was the last item. The blue jeans Jim had on when he was taken to the hospital for his injuries, they were actually cut off by paramedics and then they were bagged as evidence for the police. And when police got them out and took a look at them, In the pocket was none other than the missing revolver cylinder pin to the 22 caliber six chamber murder weapon. So they literally have Jim with the smoking gun now. So while building a case against Jim, the police questioned him a couple times in October. And Jim made a couple statements during these questionings to various government officials that just didn't quite make sense. Um, In one police interview, Jim indicated that Stephen Kurt had kidnapped him. Then the second time he was interviewed, he said that it was just Kurt who kidnapped him. But the third and final time police questioned Jim and they had enough evidence that they were sitting on, Jim was sat down on video recording and asked just to straighten out all the stories he was telling. And y'all, Jim popped. He popped. He gave a full confession to police on video, and this is what happened. Jim said that Julie was furious about his affair and called her brother Steve, who rushed over to Jim and Julie's house sometime between 4 and 5 in the morning. I'm just going to let you guys know I don't believe that for a minute because I don't see how some busy-ass farmer is really going to wake up an hour earlier to go to his brother-in-law's house. Anyway, okay, so Jim said that when... Um, His brother-in-law, Steve, pulled up. He was actually outside going to the barn when he saw headlights flashing in his driveway. So Jim walked up to Steve's truck, and Steve got out with the pistol, the one used in the crimes. He pointed the gun at Jim and said, I could do away with you right now, right here, Jim. And Jim said that his response was fight or flight, and he started wrestling with Steve for the gun, and the gun suddenly went off. Now, this doesn't really add up for investigators because Steve was shot two times smack dab in the back of his head, which is very unlikely to happen in a struggle. 
Then Jim said that he loaded up Steve into Steve's truck and it was just him alone that dumped Steve's body on the gravel road which was in between his property and Steve's property. Jim's reason for killing Jan is that she was the only other person who knew Steve went to Jim's house that morning. So he goes over to the Buckner's and while Kurt was sleeping outside in the truck bed camper, Jim shot Jan in the back of the head outside of the milk barn. Now Jim claims that Kurt chased him and the two fought now seeing how the autopsy shows the first shot Kurt sustained that actually killed him was to the back um, it's more likely Kurt was running away from Jim when he was shot so after shooting Kurt Jim goes inside the Steve's family home and he shoots all three of the boys in their sleep twice in the head Then as he goes to leave the property, he went to check Kurt and saw that he was still alive. So Jim said that he loaded Kurt up and brought him to his house. When Jim goes into his house with Kurt, he had the boy picked up over his shoulder and carried him like that to Jim's bedroom so he could wake up his wife, Julie. Now, when he got to the bedroom, Jim said that he had Kurt over his shoulder still and he went to just like readjust Kurt like, heave ho and the gun accidentally went off and just happened to shoot his sleeping wife in the head wow panicked jim decided to stage kurt in the hallway shoot him two times stab kurt to make it look like they had a fight and then jim shoots himself in the leg before calling 911 the thing that irritates me about his confession is like it would be better to just admit to what you did and actually just say I did this for XYZ than to be so tacky and to try and lie like well I accidentally shot my wife and you know the only reason Kurt died is because he tried to fight me what about the other kids that died like come on no way did Steve show up at four or five in the morning to discuss an affair nor did Steve get shot by accident I mean let's just say hypothetically Jim did accidentally kill Steve and then Jan to cover it up and then Curtis because he was awake and found out Why did he kill everybody else? I mean, how many accidental shootings can one person have? Jim could not have accidentally shot his wife after accidentally shooting his brother-in-law. I mean, statistically, it just seems impossible. Does he have no gun safety awareness? This is insane. So Jim Schmidt is charged with first-degree murder for three of the seven murders. Um, I don't know why they only charged gave him charges for three of them but either way the crime qualifies for the death penalty and it's really confusing because a lot of reports indicate that Jim was actually charged with the death penalty in April of like 1988 and I think he won a sort of appeal though in the 90s and was awarded a retrial now it's hard to fully find information and understand but there seemed to be an issue with a member of the jury from his original trial And that they were impartial to the sheriff's testimony. I don't know how or why. But Jim was going to go into a second trial that he was permitted with a sort of insanity defense. But he ultimately decided to plead guilty in exchange for life in prison rather than reface the death penalty in his second trial. Jim is in the Missouri State Penitentiary. He says he thinks he must have blocked out most of it because he doesn't see himself crossing over that line or losing it like that so he doesn't deny it he just won't fully admit to what he did oh crazy this case was so mind-boggling to me I could not believe that I hadn't heard of it 
Okay, guys, go check out my merch site. Go join my giveaway on Facebook and Instagram. Holler at me on YouTube, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.